0: Episode 27, The Paradox.
1: Welcome to The Paradox with your attending Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room.
0: Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Today in For Real Treat, we're going to talk about the opioid crisis, which everyone's familiar with. I know when I started residency, no one knew what an opioid was outside of medicine, and now sort of it's common, common nomenclature for the lay public. Uh, it used to be just called narcotics because they were illicit drugs, uh, but now everyone knows them as opioids or basically things that are derived from opium or morphine-like medications. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. If you're a new listener... Please be sure to subscribe, and thank you so much for joining us in the show. I think you're in for quite a treat, as I'll be discussing the opioid problems with Dr. Howard Gratton, who's a PM&R, or physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist, who is specialized in pain and works at the Columbia Pain and Spine Institute in Portland, Oregon. We're going to talk about addiction, withdrawal symptoms, why this crisis exists, who's to blame, who's not to blame, and essentially we're going to come to the conclusion that it's a very nuanced uh, problem. It's not one that's easily solved by legislation. We will talk about some legislative problems and some legislative solutions. We will then discuss the real solution and how that's very hard to achieve, but one that we probably should strive for. Show notes will be at theparadox.com slash 027. There you can have access to the links we talk about and also ways to contact Dr. Grattan and find out more about his pain clinic. I'd appreciate it if you went to patreon.com slash theparadox. There you can become a patron supporter of the show. And as always, all the money raised there goes towards the production and promotion of the show. But without further ado, this is the discussion I had with Dr. Howard Grattan and the opioid crisis. Enjoy. Hello, this is Eric Larson. I'm here with Dr. Howard Grattan, who is a PMNR, which is a physical medicine rehabilitation specialist and a pain management specialist who works at the Columbia Pain, pain, pain Institute in Portland, Oregon. He completed his medical school residency and just for good measure, his fellowship all at Loma Linda University out in California. And today we're going to be talking about opioids. And for those of you who don't know what an opioid is, it's basically morphine or any sort of derivative, morphine-like pain medication. Uh, also, an important thing, at PM&R is especially, which is not known to many people when you think of doctors, I think, it's, um, it is a specialty that focuses on the rehabilitation after injuries uh, and then- you did a subspecialty, obviously in pain, and so uh, it's. I don't want to say it's not a regular physician because it is absolutely, but it's one that people, most people, are not familiar with. It's certainly, at least in my medical school at University of Iowa, we didn't have any rotations in PM&R. You sort of knew of them, but there was there was no PM&R sort of rotation. Right. So actually, my first question would be how did you get in? How did you get interested in PM&R medicine?
1: Oh well, that's kind of an interesting story. Um, Eh, Not really all that interesting, I guess. Funny. (laughs) More funny. Um, So I was interested in curing all the woes in the world and solving every problem. And I was thinking of actually going to the mission field. I was going to be a general surgeon so I could just do anything out there. I didn't particularly enjoy it. I was good at it, um, at least according to my attendings, who rarely say anything nice to anyone. (laughs) So I thought that was the way to go. And about third year, they're setting up the rotations for fourth year. My good friend, Dr. Lewis, who also is a pain management specialist, but he's up in uh, Spokane. He told me about physical medicine rehabilitation. And once again, fairly small residency. There's only, there are only four residents uh, per year, uh, which is small considering, um, you know, it's a level one trauma center and a pretty big university. Sure. Uh, 200 kids a class, four of them PNR. So I was like, oh, tell me about this. And it's essentially, if the reason not a lot of people know about it is because you're not that messed up. <laughs> it's <laughs> when, you know, spinal cord injuries, brain injuries, strokes, uh, multiple fractures, um, you know, it's uh, people who have amputations, need prosthetics and things like that. In some ways, kind of the 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 medical leader of a team that helps people through significant crises, uh, and that's kind of the core training, the inpatient aspect, and then following them up as an outpatient. And so within that, you have a, a fair amount of pain management because you're you're wanting to have people be able to tolerate all this physical therapy that you're you're giving them, in occupational therapy, and shout out to speech pathology as well. Can't forget right. them you know, you're, you're working with the patient, working with motivation skills and, and all of these things to have people help people to overcome significant obstacles in their life. And then a, a branch off that is uh, pain management. Now pain management originally started with uh, anesthesia. Right. Um, anesthesia also does pain management fellowships. And so they do four years of putting people to sleep and then um, they do a fellowship in a year and, uh, deal with the most difficult population of patients there are. So obviously you could tell I'm a bit biased towards <laughs> doing physical medicine rehabilitation as your core training and then a uh, pain management fellowship. But uh, predominantly anesthesia is what uh, the majority of training uh, pain physicians uh, have trained in. And that started through the epidural. Um, yep. That was one of the early interventions in anesthesiologists did epidurals for labor and so then you uh uh, they started doing that for chronic pain radiculopathy or sciatica type symptoms and then they developed an entire fellowship of doing you know different regional blocks and injections uh to then treat chronic pain and then with that they also folded in uh, medication management and things like that and pmnr comes along and says well, why don't you just teach us the injections because we already know the medical management and the motivation aspects? So then, it's uh, oftentimes it's kind of a joint training like our PM and our our, our um, fellowship was actually an anesthesia based fellowship um, at Loma Linda. That's just kind of who owns and runs the boards board meetings, <laughs> right, Yeah,
0: and I, well, it was the same at Iowa. I think you know at Iowa we had they were all anesthesiologists who are running the pain clinic. I don't. F- Maybe we had one who was uh, an internist because I think the other sort of specialty that ends up there are internists who were neurologists, and I think that's sort of the other mm-hmm. kind of specialist you'll see who ends up in pain management.
1: Every now and then a psychiatrist will um, poke their head into the waters.
0: Most people who are psychiatrists, kind of more the medical management, although, you know, again, you we're all physicians, and we can you can kind of get trained up <laughs> in sort of right. whatever. Yeah, it definitely was a natural extension for for anesthesiologists. Well, I ended up in anesthesia because and because I thought I was cool, and that was sort of the extent of my what I thought was kind of fun. I remember telling, coming home and telling my wife, and in Iowa it was a required rotation, and my wife just laughed at me. She because uh, she's a pediatrician, she uh, she thought I was joking. She thought, she thought that was the most boring rotation she had in medical school, and then she felt really bad because she realized that I did really enjoy it.
1: I feel really bad because I didn't realize you're anesthesiologist. Here I am. <laughs>
0: This is why I don't tell you anything coming to these interviews it keeps it raw. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's talk about opioids because everyone is talking about opioids right now and I I want to it I feel like over the last year or maybe a year and a half well first of all the term opioid really no one knew about no one knew I mean everyone knows what heroin is which is an opioid derivative mm. uh, the lay public had never heard of opioids and then suddenly it's this crisis people overdosing all the time why don't you talk to us about sort of well, I guess maybe we'll back up a little bit for, further. So the so opioids have been used as pain medication for forever. I mean, as soon as people recognize the properties with the poppy, right? It, I mean, centuries.
1: Yeah, right. Evidence in Chinese were using it, uh, you know, 200 BC, that kind of...
0: Sure. And, and when it comes to pain, uh, treating pain, I'm in mean, a practicing anesthesiologist, the most effective pain medications I use for, have for acute pain, meaning pain right at that time, are opioids. I mean, they're... Mm. They're, without a doubt, they've, they're the strongest, uh, so they're absolutely essential. Because if you try to live without them, it'd be—I can't imagine trying to get through a lot of the surgeries we do and the, oh, the yeah. things. Uh, so they're they're everywhere, right? And right. so somehow, opioids became a big problem because there's all. It, there seems to be always a drug problem at some at some level in this country, whether it's marijuana or then it's methamphetamines, and right now it's opioids. So how did this sort of start?
1: Sure. Well, it started actually from people complaining about a lack of opioids. Early 1990s, there began to be some agitation and concern for poorly treated pain, uncontrolled pain. One of the earliest uh, big names to um, start talking about uncontrolled pain was Melzack of um, Wall and Melzack, who kind of uh, decades earlier became famous for kind of describing the gate. Control theory of how pain is conducted and how pain is kind of modulated within the body. Melzack is a big researcher, and, and he wrote an, an article uh, called "The Tragedy of Needless Pain" in 1990. That kind of started the conversation of are we under treating pain? And then in 1991, there was a successful lawsuit uh, of like 15 million dollars for a patient who was uh, under in the last stages of. Uh, metastatic prostate cancer—it's known as the James case. He's Mr. James, and and he was, you know, basically left to die in a um, a nursing home, multiple months, no medications, no opioid medications, uh, all the way up until the end, with multiple bony metastases. Prostate tends to go to the bones. So then people are like, "Oh, wow! You can get sued for under treating pain." Right. And that always perks up doctors' attention. And then there was um. Another case in 1998 where it wasn't nearly as clear cut as uh, kind of an egregious under treatment of pain. A patient comes into the, the hospital; it's there for uh, I can't remember a couple three days to a week or so. Is thought to have end stage uh, lung cancer, but hadn't had any pre very poor uh, pre hospitalization workup, and then decides to leave and uh, didn't want any treatment, didn't want a definitive diagnosis, dies about a week later. Family comes and says, you undertreated his pain, and he died in misery. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the hospital's like, well, I mean, he was here for a while. He he left before he got his final diagnosis. I mean, what responsibility do we have to treat Mm -hmm. his pain? Anyway, they still won and got millions of dollars. So then... That really kind of kicks off, and at the same time, there is a kind of a change in the impetus to um, really treat uh, pain. So, in '97, uh, right before this lawsuit, Jacob, which is the um, uh, the accrediting body of hospitals, uh, decided that pain was being undertreated, and they declared it the fifth vital sign.
0: What year did you finish your training? So I finished, Yeah, I was actually going to say, because when I first remembered, it was the, the fifth vital sign was coming to probably into Vogue right about then because I finished the right. end of the 90s. So I graduated in 2000. And so it was blood pressure, heart rate, temperature, respiratory rate. And then the fifth vital sign was, what is your pain? Zero to 10, right? And so that was a new emphasis through the VA, I think, and also uh, through, like you said, JCO sort of impetus or yeah, pushing yeah,
1: it the hospitals. And, and so this became um, a big Things. So I finished med school in 02, and so I was going through my um, residency and fellowship shortly after. And you know, I'd frequently have patients say, you know, it's my right to pain control. You have to write more pain medications. Yeah. Um, it was this huge push to uh, adequately treat pain. Um, and then the uh, government got involved in the year 2000 uh, called the Pain Relief Promotion Act of 2000. It uh, stated in there that the, the first decade of the 21st century – is the decade for pain control? There was uh, shortly after that in 01. The physicians, uh, there was an article called uh, "The Physician's Legal Duty to Relieve Suffering," and so you can see kind of how this is snowballing, where yeah. you know there's there's more and more uh, emphasis on treating pain, and then studies started coming out uh, talking about how patients were under-treated in regards to their uh, post-op pain medications, chronic pain medications. And at the same time, there was a lot of studies that were starting to delve into long-term use of opioid medications. And the initial studies, you know, you're, you're talking about a year's length, maybe two years length, um, which is, turns out to be too short of a time. It's period. not
0: long-term. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: But you can see why, you know, if somebody was having, you know, if you're going to have some kind of a study... You can't just drag it on forever. I mean, you got to get that thing out there at some point. And most studies are done by residents and med students and things like that, you know, doing a lot of the the groundwork and then the attendings kind of put their name on it. So you can't really have a multi-year study because, you know, you got to get this out there. You got to get published. published. Right. And so it it showed that uh, rates of addiction were very low. And that tolerance was extremely common, and uh, you could relieve tolerance by increasing the dose, and that would then regain the pain control. The mantra was that, oh, well, you know, it's, it's been six months, they're going to become tolerant, just you know, increase the dose. Typical dose increase is 50 to 100 percent in order to regain pain control. Mm-hmm. So, if you got somebody who's uh, on pain management. Every six months to a year, you're increasing the dose by 50 to 100 percent. You know, it's it's you can see how this is kind of a brewing storm. So now you've got all these people on opioid medications, all these doctors who are thinking they're doing what's uh, best and what's right. You now have several different formulations of long-term opioid medications or chronic. I'm sorry, not long-term, chronic-release opioid medications like MS Contin, the uh, fentanyl patch, the OxyContin, the notorious OxyContin. A lot of the early, long-term, uh, slow-release pain medications didn't have a very consistent release profile. Mm-hmm. So you get about a 50% dump as an immediate release with MS-Contin and OxyContin. The biggest pill of OxyContin is 80 milligrams. So you're talking 40 of that is an immediate release. And then the other 40 is stretched out over 12 hours. And that's regardless of the ease of defeating the long-term slow-release formulation. So they're kind of a hard ceramic pill, and then the Oxy uh, is stuffed in that thing somehow, um, and then it slowly filters out over time in your gut. Well, addicts are smart, um, or at least smart enough, and uh, they just grind that stuff up and snort it. So now you've got you know, an entire day's worth of opioid medication right there in a little pile that you can just snort. It doesn't matter what form, you know, however long this pill uh, is supposed to last and how slow it's supposed to release. You know, if it's a defeatable pill, you know, people are going to abuse it. And even if they don't specifically try to defeat the pill in order to abuse it, you're still getting a 50% dump right at the beginning.
0: Right. I mean, if you can use chemistry to develop something, you use chemistry to take it apart. Right. I mean, I think, yeah, yeah, exactly. that's it. Yeah. yeah. So so basically, you have you have a setup here for potential problems, right? You have people who have pain, and there's no shortage of people who have acute pain and chronic pain in this country. There are millions, Absolutely. tens of millions of people who suffer from it at some point in their life. Uh, you have an environment now in the late '90s uh, where you've had a couple cases of litigation where people, where physicians are sued for under treating something. You have an emphasis uh, from an ethical and sort of uh, empathetic Sort of, I mean, reason for treating suffering. I mean, that's part of the reason we go into medicine to not, to gain that personal relationship with the patients, and help them in their journey to get better. And part of that is to help you feel better if we can. And so you are encouraged, obviously, to treat pain because you don't want to see suffering.
1: And and the body and the body of research was still hadn't really fully described the long-term consequences of chronic right. opioid medication. Right,
0: and I think you know it's not unreasonable. There are plenty of studies that saying that the stress response from having being in pain for a long time is damaging to the body as well. So you could you could make Absolutely. a scientific argument too that you should be treating pain as best as you can for healthy, you know, physiologic reasons for the for the body. Yeah. Then we have a push from the government or at least quasi governmental agencies in that that we're going to recognize pain is so important that we're going to treat it as a fifth vital sign, and so. You have to keep track of this it's probably going to be a measure for how what kind of quality your hospital has or your your treatment so you've at this point by the late 90s early 2000s you now have environment where there's every reason to prescribe pain medication or opioid medication and there's really no disincentive to it because i mean the dea occasionally would sort of start tra- pr- cracking down but it wasn't until probably what would you say like 2010 or around there, where the DA started going after physicians, like saying, "Okay, so people are prescribing millions right. of you know of pills, and we got to some we got some problems now."
1: Yeah, 2010 uh, was kind of the turning point, um, and they did some addendums to the uh, Controlled Substances Act, and really, that's kind of the the uh, start of the government crackdown that's also when a lot of the um, physician not, not physician the pharmacy databases uh, statewide pharmacy databases were coming into were being formed uh, now it's mandated that every state has a uh, pharmacy database tracking for opioid and scheduled uh, medications
0: and just to stop you for a second just yes. to tell people who aren't familiar with that basically what that is 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 now if you get a if you get a prescription Opioid or pain medication, some sort of schedule where it means it's restricted by the drug enforcement agency uh, that that is tracked, and so you can't just go to a different. In theory, you can't keep going to different physicians to get the same pain medicine for the same uh, the same ailment, and then suddenly get you know three, four times the dose, or get a lot of extra medicine and then you sell it on the street. I mean, that's that's the reason for this. Although strangely, the VA is not part of that system, so you can, that is actually not tracked in the in our the state reporting systems. But go ahead. <laughs>
1: Uh, as, as, an, as an example of the issue with pharmacy databases we're trying to solve, uh, California was one of the first ones to start tracking, and this is called the Cures, Cures Report, C-O-R-E-S. It stands for California Utilization of, I don't
0: know. Blah, blah, blah.
1: Blah, blah, blah. We had a, uh, a conference. Uh, someone came down from the, um, the state uh, narcotics division uh, whatever the state-level DEA was. And they gave us a little talk and said that they initially had this database, had it going, and they said, all right, so we're going to run a report. We're going to go after the people who are taking the most. And so they, they get this report, da 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 And uh, they say, all right, let's limit it to uh, the people who are getting some type of pain medication from more than 10 doctors uh, <laughs> a month. Uh, okay. Ten different doctors a month. We're going to run this report. All right, and so they came up with 200 pages of people. <laughs> so they ran the report again. This time with 30 different doctors, and started working down from there. So one different doctor every single
0: day. That's amazing. Yeah. So now we're going after we're going after people getting pills. We're not going after the people who are prescribed them. Correct.
1: Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah, and that was the initial initial push because it was uh, in some ways kind of, I don't know if it was a blame the user. I mean, that that tends to be uh, the initial push was to, uh, you know, kind of uh, blame the addict, blame the user. And you can kind of see why. I mean, if someone is is very obviously defrauding the system in order to obtain more opioid medications and uh, to then sell and dispense those, you know, a fairly, clear-cut case of it being uh, against the laws. The frequency of prescriptions, the total prescriptions written, actually peaked at about 2011. So 2010, government says, all right, too much opioids are being written. 2011, the amount of opioids prescribed actually starts decreasing. What do you think happened to the number of drug overdoses? It must have gone down 2011, right?
0: Well, if this, you read the newspapers, you'd assume that, but wait, they see the problem didn't start really until about two years ago. So something must, it must right. have gone up, even though yeah. there are less prescriptions.
1: So yes, in 2011, if you look at these little charts, I mean, there's a slow, steady increase kind of correlating with the number of opioids that are written in, in overdoses. But 2010, 2011, you start to see a much more dramatic kind of increase. It's a highly predictable response if you understand opioids and addiction issues, right? Uh, uh, Even if it's not a true addiction uh, and for clarification, we should talk a little bit about what addiction versus dependence is. Uh, Addiction is when people are specifically seeking some type of a chemical or some type of an activity to uh, cope with psychological stress. And there are some type of enjoyment or in that pursuit of the, chemical or activity is harmful to their life. Dependence is, okay, I've been on this pain medication for years, I don't receive any kind of high from it, I don't enjoy being on it, but if I stop it, my body is gonna freak out,
0: and Mm -hmm. you're gonna have
1: withdrawals. And So that's a physical dependence, very different from addiction. Both sets of people will have significant withdrawals when they stop, Uh, because it's the use of the medication that causes the withdrawals as opposed to... Uh, so the addiction is a psychological component to misuse of the medication, and the other is kind of more of a physical issue. But even if you have a uh, someone who is in significant pain, using their medications completely appropriately, and is now dependent on the medication, is now seen as, as having an excessively high dose by the governing bodies or by the primary care physician and say, I'm not going to write this medication for you anymore. We have to come down. We have to do something. Everyone is on our back. DEA is starting to bust doctors for over-prescribing. You're coming down off your medications. So most of the time, people don't overdose if they're steady. Your overdoses tend to happen when there is a disruption, And then an overuse. If you're cut down in your pain medications, you know, a doctor decides, okay, well, it's now required that you get urine drug screens every so often. Oh, you had an extra hydrocodone in your urine drug screen. You're only supposed to be on oxycodone. I'm cutting you off. Yeah. So they get cut off. They're out, go through withdrawals, find a different doctor in a couple of months. And the doctor says, you know, what were you on? Oh, I was on oxy this and this and this. Okay, boom, here you go. And then you overdose because you've lost that tolerance and that, uh, to the medication, much more likely to overdose, particularly if you're, you know, in a chronically ill population that doesn't have a whole lot of reserves where you're already some type of a CO2 retainer, you know, you don't have very good lungs. Um, and you know, once you start to breathe slower, you're retaining the CO2 and then your body says, you know, why breathe? I'm all sleepy, and then you're just gone.
0: Yeah, I was, and I'll jump for a second. So, just to make it clear to people, so what opioids do is they decrease your respiratory rate, or they, and they change your response. So, your body, you you produce carbon dioxide. You breathe in oxygen. You you produce carbon dioxide through your metabolic activity, and so that is what dictates how fast you breathe. So, if you're more active, you're producing more CO two. Let's let's say you're running, you breathe faster. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or like a baby will be breathing three four times the rate of an adult because their metabolic activity is much higher so anyway so the co2 level dictates how much how fast you breathe but uh but it's blunted by the opioids additionally if you are someone who is older like you mentioned with less reserves then you are potentially at greater risk because your your co2 levels your carbon dioxide levels can get up to a certain point and when they get to a certain point they actually cause sedation all by itself and so occasionally there's this there's this very small window where you're awake enough <laughs> to breathe, but if that CO two gets up too high, then you're going to go back to sleep. And so, the reason people overdose on this is is not from like the heart failing or something like that specifically. It's it's because they basically stop breathing, right? And so, and so what you're saying is that you you had a certain amount that you needed, uh, that you required, and then now it's got, your tolerance is gone, and so you go back to your previous dose that you were on maybe two months ago, and now it's far more than 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 your body would just can handle. And you just, right. it blunts your response to breathe and you stop breathing and then you die. Right.
1: And so uh, same thing with addicts. I mean, if you uh, look at the different news, anytime that, um, you know, some famous person dies or something like that. And there's oftentimes some type of a story of, oh, they were doing so well, they were in recovery. And we really thought this was going to be, they were, they were going to make it this time. right? And then the overdose. And it's oftentimes that that you know, first time going back to the drug. You now have kind of people using less medications, less frequently, more oversight, and you have increasing and increasing numbers of deaths. More people are turning to the street to uh, achieve their pain control that they previously felt that they had. Mm-hmm. And so uh, heroin is more popular than ever. Fentanyl uh, is now entering into the mix in the illicit world. Uh, coming from who knows where I haven't really followed
0: up. I mean, that's a synthetic opioid, right? So someone's making that or being stolen from somewhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. It's obviously, you know, it's extremely potent, so you don't need a whole ton of it. And there is a kind of an economic law, I should say, uh, where if you make something illegal, you're going to make it more potent and dangerous. And you've seen that with marijuana, you know, it's like 30 times as potent as it was in the sixties because You make it more potent in order to smuggle it. Uh, Cocaine, more potent. Opioids, more potent. So there's always this kind of drive to make things more potent anytime you have to smuggle it. Um, Because there's
0: always so much risk that you might have... Right. Exactly. So that you can get more for it. You, it's it's not worth it. It's not worth moving a ton of cocaine if it's not very potent, but a ton of really potent cocaine, you don't need to sell as much. And so you're going to get right. a higher price. Right. Okay. You know,
1: instead of carrying a ton of it, you just need 200 pounds of it. Right. That's yeah, easier to. Uh, so, you know, fentanyl, I mean, it's extremely potent. So you need a couple of vials. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it would be uh, much easier to move. I don't know. Do they have like crystallized forms of fentanyl?
0: I mean, how did. Well, uh, you know, fentanyl is interesting. Uh, it you can just actually uh, fentanyl you could just put it on a mucous membrane; it would be effective. So there are all sorts of delivery mechanisms for fentanyl that we've used to help with, like especially the pediatric population, right? If you don't want to start an IV or something, or um, and you right. want to give a little bit of pain medication, you can give some. Well, they have transdermal, so they have patches, yeah. like you mentioned. That's a sustained release. Uh, yeah. And then if you but interestingly, like if you heat something up a lot, then it's, the release is going to increase because you're going to increase the vascular supply to it. But you can also intranasal, you can do it uh, sublingual. I mean, there are, like, there are fentanyl lollipops that were developed.
1: That's right. Yeah, I, forgot all, I haven't written the uh, Actique lollipops for quite some time, but I don't have, I don't have a big uh, cancer population. But yeah, yeah, the uh, Actique lollipops, I forgot all about those.
0: I don't Do they still make, I don't I've only read about them. It's not, it's not something I use in, in the the perioperative time. Right. So, and then, you know, one of the other things too, that I think is not, it's not maybe clear to people is that if you take away, if you take away something that people were used to, they have a tolerance for a certain amount of pain medication. We'll just call it pain medication, but it's opioids. They're going to look for some way of replacing it. Right. And so that's what you're saying. They're going to the streets and naturally they're going to go to, Get heroin because that's the equivalent or fentanyl. You know the potency is not. There's not, I I'm guessing. I don't know this, but I'm guessing the dealer's not going to tell you the exact potency and exactly. <laughs> of their product. Then they may say this is really strong or this is really weak or whatever, and you're right. just going to. So you don't know. So you may think you're getting a dose that worked before, and maybe you had to get a new dealer or they got a new supply or something, and suddenly you're getting more than you thought, and now you stop breathing. Right. And then or and that's where you get these. That's where you're getting all these deaths. So we've had. So in 2011, the prescription for opioids peaks, yet we don't really start hearing about the overdose problem until, I don't know, I suppose like 2015. I feel like it was talked about during the presidential election of Trump. Mm-hmm. I think around there, people started talking about it. So clearly it was after the the rate of prescription writing had gone down. So right now, and I don't know what it's like in Oregon, but in Michigan last year, there, were, there was a slew of laws that were passed. In order to combat the opioid crisis mm-hmm. and the laws were focused on the make sure everyone's a mandatory reporter through the uh, electronic reporting system like we talked about the state prescription reporting system and then essentially all these other things that were um, assuming the physician was complicit or causing the problem uh, you know initially that that it was a f- that it was a physician run driven problem in the country in the state of Michigan for certain certainly so they would have to have um, you're not allowed to write very many pain pills uh, so like you know if you have a surgery you can only get a 7 day supply so people if they live 2 hours away they got to drive back because no one else is going to prescribe that medication for them because now you're under the watchful eye of the DEA and the state and the state licensing board for right. writing these medications and you're if you don't follow these these laws like if you don't use the automated system twice you've lost your license i mean that's a pretty Mm-hmm. That's a that's about and you've lost your livelihood and so it has at yeah. least I don't know what again I don't know what it's like an organ, but here it has encouraged people to not write any pain medication right uh, surgeons kind of like it because they they say well it's not my problem you're just gonna have to go suffer somewhere else but sure. don't call me go talk go to pain specialists and guess what there aren't that many pain specialists right certainly ones who are gonna start a relationship with a patient you know right. after you, you suddenly need it you need your yeah pain and pain.
1: almost yeah I mean we have a policy almost every pain physician has a policy uh of not writing opioids on the first visit. Uh, we don't know you from from Jomo, so right. we get a urine drug screen, get all the records, have you back in a couple of weeks, and then write opioid medications if it's appropriate and so
0: nothing happens in the, the first, first day
1: unlikely, yeah. Yeah, we are.
0: (laughs) The first date is definitely off limits.
1: Exactly. I I got that belt just uh, locked tight. Um, So, yeah, I mean, and they say, well, what do I do? Like, well, you know, if you have significant problems with withdrawal, we'll be happy to call in withdrawal medications, but it's not our responsibility as of yet to write any type of opioid medications. And all of our referring physicians kind of know that, but, you know, people come from out of town and move the area, and who knows? It's just... People are kind of always caught between a rock and a hard place. I have no idea who to trust. And that's another thing I kind of wanted to bring up just in regards to the whole atmosphere of treating pain Mm -hmm. right now. Basically anyone that comes into my office, it's already almost an adversarial relationship Um, because you know, they were oftentimes sent by the primary because the primary doesn't want to write any opioid medications and their job in their mind is to now convince me to write opioid medications. Yeah. And they oftentimes have very little concern of my wonderful advice <laughs> <laughs> and what we should do, where we should go. You know, everything that uh, you can always just feel it coming on. Uh, okay, well, let's go through your history. You know, what have you tried? Da, da, da. Oh, I've tried it. Everything. The only thing that works is hydrocodone. Like, Okay. Well, you know, when was the last time you had physical therapy? You know, what do you do every day to stretch? You know, all that stuff doesn't work. Only thing that works is hydrocodone. Yeah. Okay, you know, all right. Well, I'm just, you know, trying to get an idea of what's going on so we can try and you know help with your pain the best possible. You know, all I all I was sent over is my primary said that you were gonna write my hydrocodone. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're off to a bad start. <laughs> and uh And there's, it's very rare that I feel that someone is actually coming to me for advice. You know, if, if a lot of these medications weren't as controlled, then people would just come in and say, Hey doc, you know, I am taking, you know, five morphines a day and it helps, but it makes me feel a little weird. And I'm really worried that I'm just hooked on this stuff. And I'm I'm working right now, but you know it's it's I'm really worried that uh, it's going to affect my work. What should I do? Right, so that's one question. Like, what should I do? I'm on these opioids. They give me some benefits and some downsides. Help me out here. Yeah. That's not really a conversation that we ever really have, because um, everything is kind of masked and hidden behind this, you know, conversation that we're not really having, which is I want my pills. I'm super scared that you're not going to write me pills because of everything on the news. And I'm really yeah. afraid of withdrawals. I've had it happen before because, you know, I was on vacation and I dropped my pills. And I had to go through withdrawals on vacation. is a horrible experience or something like that. Sure. Everybody who's been on pain pills for a long time has had, you know, some type of a time when they were off. And the first stage of withdrawal is not the shaking chills in a corner throwing up. It's an increase in pain because when you've been on opioid medications for a long time, your opioid receptors become changed. They're not as effective. Uh, your body creates additional pain receptors and you become hypersensitive to pain. So now, not only do you have you know, this bum knee or bad back that's causing pain, the fact that you're on pain pills for a long time, that is all magnified. And now you don't have the one thing that was helping, which is the pain pills, you have your natural pain, and all of this increased sensitivity, so it's an absolutely miserable amount of pain. Then, that's so that's a that's a withdrawal phenomenon that happens right away as soon as that pain pill wears off, um, and then you start to get the more nausea vomiting diarrhea. So people, as soon as they run out of their pills, think that without this medication, this is what I'm going to feel like for the rest of my life. Yeah, without kind of the understanding that. No, your, your body is going to adapt. It's going to get used to uh, not having the opioids. It's going to create its own natural painkillers called endorphins again. It's going to pare back all of this extra sensitivity, and you're going to be about as miserable off the pain pills as you were on them because that's now where the early studies were showing that, oh, if somebody has tolerance, you can regain pain control by increasing the dose. Now we found that, well, If you just keep doing that, people end up to be just about as miserable on them as they would be off them because there's kind of a top end to the, the pain system, the opioid system. You lose your own natural endorphins, your own natural testosterone becomes depleted. Your body doesn't heal as well. It doesn't fight infections as well. And your function decreases. Sure. Longer term studies that have now been done, have kind of shown that long-term opioid medications are not effective in improving patients pain or function. But the question is, what do we do?
0: Yeah.
1: That is a great conversation to have on an individual basis with the patient and with the physician to work their work themselves down using other types of mechanisms and for them to actually understand the process that's going on. You know, physicians getting scared, cutting people off all at once, or the oversight making it so that I can have no real leeway or second chances if, if, if somebody shows up on a urine drug screen with you know methamphetamines or cocaine, I'm not going to write them another prescription, right they're just, they're just done. and it's you know, God bless, don't overdose, please. but you know what you know I, I'm not going to take on that responsibility of that person. Situation that they've gotten themselves into with using the medications. And so it's just a a very weird and kind of convoluted set of priorities that each side kind of has. My priorities number one, take care of the patient. But number two, right behind that, is keep my license so I can continue taking care of other patients. You know, those two are oftentimes in competition with each other.
0: So if we look at the opioid. We'll call it a crisis and I, I'll do the air quotes in uh, for podcasting here for crisis. Because I think it's <clears throat> in some respects it is desperation. People end up sort of where they are. I think it's, as you said, it, people, need a, people need a better understanding of, of what's going on. And I think from most physicians don't. Uh, certainly patients don't have an idea and they don't have any idea for how to get to where they want to be, which is a, a point where they can function in life with some, with some discomfort, but not debilitating. Mm -hmm. And so, and so all these laws that we've passed that have basically made it criminal to get these medications for pain uh, and then, or to distribute them.
1: And I will, I will just jump in there for you to interrupt, but physicians are now being charged with murder. Right. As a patient has overused the prescription that they gave them. Typically you think of as murder as like, I'm intending to kill this person. And I've used some direct action to kill that person. Um, you know, providing something to someone that they're addicted to, being murder is. You know, that's a that's a, an interesting take on the law, but also it's extremely concerning to any physician. You not only will you potentially lose your license, but you will be charged with murder if oh, someone overdoses yeah. on the pills that you're written the writing. And what if they were, you know, lying to you this whole time and they're abusing them? It's, it's uh, a very fearful time. And you can see how primary care doctors, you know, they're not at all interested in writing opioid medications. They're there to, you know, let's make sure your diabetes is in check. Let's, you know, treat you and keep you as healthy as
0: possible. Yeah. You know,
1: pain pills, I don't, I don't deal with that anymore. So you right. have this huge population that's just kind of lost.
0: It, it's a natural reaction actually to people who are yeah you' when your livelihood is potentially your freedom <laughs> is at risk for for prescribing these medications or making them available to your patients you're naturally not going to do it I mean the right. it's not there's no payoff there for it and especially if you know that it's that's the environment that you're in meaning other physicians are feel the same way you're not going to be seen as an outlier like that one guy is you're never prescribing well no one is right in primary care right. and certainly these are challenging problems to take care of especially in a busy practice uh, that you only have 5 10 minutes with a patient for a, for a family practice or internist, they're not going to have the time to go through the description you just made for you know hyperalgesia and all this and and the rebound from stopping narcotics and going through some sort of explaining explaining your process for getting them onto different uh, therapies so what do we where do we go from here i mean i you know, i right now i feel like we're in an environment that is that is not reasonable. It It's treating both patients and physicians as criminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and as physicians, we're now the only ones, we're the gatekeepers for this, the only thing that's gonna make these people feel better, that's their their impression. And so they're gonna go to any lengths to, to get it, and if they can't get it from us, they're gonna go to the streets and get it. But mm-hmm. you think, but having a, a more realistic conversation that's with their physician, like you said, would be a better, a better route to try and fix this problem, to, to, to explain why they're having this problem and to explain strategies for getting off of them. I mean, obviously some people are going to want them. They enjoy that just like people enjoy alcohol and just being drunk all the time. There's some ways you can't right. treat that, but probably most people don't like that dependence on having, having be on morphine all day long and not being able to poop. <laughs> right. And that's a real problem. <laughs> Absolutely. So how, so how would you, how do you, how do you think we get a, get around this? I mean, do you just legalize everything? Do you, do you change the laws? I mean, I, I don't. I don't want to get you in, in trouble here, but I mean, honestly, what do you think the the rational way to get to fix this problem would be?
1: Yeah, that's kind of why I was uh, <laughs> thinking maybe I would do this anonymously, uh, because uh, yes, I mean, this is a psychological and social problem. You can't fix psychological and social problems with a butt of a gun, which is essentially what the government's tool is. You know, these uh, laws are very general means of, you know, kind of blunt force trauma. And eventually the numbers will go down. Eventually the numbers would have gone down regardless of the government doing anything. Mm -hmm. And then the government's going to take credit and people are going to kind of forget that this happened. I don't think it is helpful at all what the government is doing um, because if you recall I mentioned how the research has evolved yeah the research has evolved to now show that it's not very helpful and so my clinical practice was was changing in the early 2000s right yeah because that was when some of this research was coming out I was like this there's no way this is healthy or worthwhile to have these people on all these high dose medications in the fellowship they've the fellowship I went through was a pretty high prescribing fellowship following all the you know fifth vital sign, you know, uh,
0: yeah. All it, the guidelines,
1: all, all the guidelines, you know, they're following it to the T uh, and I was just like, this, this doesn't seem to be working. Uh, and I don't think this is very helpful. So my practice was trying to be fairly opioid sparing and the research has borne that out. And so it just in general, doctors, have been moving away from writing opioid medications following the research. Insurance companies are also very interested in following the research and saying, okay, well, you know, your doctor can write you whatever, but there's no research showing that that's helpful. We're not going to pay for it. If you want to pay for it, fine, knock yourself out, but you know, we're not going to be paying for all these high dose opioid medications. Then you would have a more, Uh, kind of a civil uh, decompression of all of this opioid overuse uh, without the kind of fear and uh, gaps in treatment, this breaking of this uh, patient-physician relationship that tends to cause people to go to the street or go to a different physician who doesn't know them as well. And then other types of opioids are written or, you know, and then also the, the line that goes on it's somewhat of an understandable hiding of the truth that patients will have. All right. New physician, last one kicked me out. I better start hoarding medications. And I'm going to say that I am on, you know, five morphines instead of three right, or, or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, so you know, once again, patients aren't dumb, they kind of see all this stuff rolling out. They're going to want to create their own little stockpile where does that stockpile end up you know maybe it gets stolen maybe their kids take it and they have an overdose you know? yeah so, right uh you've, you've got all of these little unintended consequences that uh were very predictable uh, it's it's going to be a while before all this kind of unwinds
0: yeah right and I guess you know that if you were a libertarian, you'd say, oh, you just legalize everything and that'll fix all the problems. Well, it's not going to fix all the problems because people are still going to, like you said, people are still going to overdose. The wrong people are going to get it. People aren't going to know how to use the, the medications properly. It's going to cause all kinds of problems too. And so ultimately, you're going to have lots of problems. When you have any sort of medication like this, there are all sorts of risks involved. Yeah. And so you can't fix that. And so I guess the question is, what's the what's the most humane way to... Treat people in pain, and to uh, have people try and solve these issues of pain control—is mm. it, you know, is it throwing physicians and patients in prison? I don't know. I mean, I don't. I, I guess you know that's a hard, That's a that's a long, whole other podcast, <laughs> maybe a long series. So I guess, I guess the whole point of this of today's discussion, the hope was, is to recognize that it's not as simple as what you hear on TV. Or what you see, read the papers. Uh, are there papers anymore? I guess not, really, <laughs> right? Uh, but essentially, it's not just like, oh, there's a couple guys who are prescribing too much, uh, too many pain medications, or there are these dealers out there or these unscrupulous people. It's it's a super complicated problem, right? And right. it's it's not it and it it's it has physiologic meaning that your your body affects how you uh, how you respond to things, and so it's not something you can easily just pass a couple laws and fix it like most things most things are nuanced and unfortunately the law is not a nuanced device of fixing any problem right and so i guess i guess the just recognize that opioids the problem is a very nuanced one and it's not one that trump or the democrats or republicans seem to solve right. by just waving their hands and passing a couple laws and saying go to you know you're going to jail if you prescribe too many of these or if you start taking too much right
1: I mean, I will um, push back a little bit on the uh, good uh, problems of legalization. I mean, uh, Portugal has had legal drugs for going on uh, a dozen years now, mm-hmm. uh, and they've had a dramatic decrease in uh, overdose deaths. I mean, their use of heroin among teens was extremely high um, uh, ten years ago, and you know, now it's extremely, extremely low. Their, their use of teen use of like marijuana uh, is now about the same as our teen use of cocaine. So just this whole idea. I assume that's
0: of, not much. I don't know the numbers, no, but I would yeah, say yeah.
1: Not much, yeah. not much. Okay. Very low. You know, the, the whole idea of teens, you know, using drugs just kind of became passe in, in Portugal, which is like, eh, you know, I'm not fighting the man by doing drugs. Maybe I just don't want to put this stuff in my body. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, there, there certainly is a, a a mystique when you're a teenager fighting against the system by harming your own body somehow. I didn't get into that. But um, a, a full legalization would certainly kind of take the, oh, I don't know, the um, the mask off of whose responsibility it is because you have three main actors within that relationship. You have the pharmacist, the physician, and the patient. Patient has a responsibility to use it correctly. Physician has a responsibility to provide good information. Pharmacist has a responsibility to dispense the right medication and a medication that they also ethically agree with. Mm -hmm. When I write or recommend medication for a patient that the FDA has approved of. Uh, it gives the patients kind of a, in some sense, a false sense of security that this is a medication that's going to be helpful. I'm not going to become addicted to it. The doctor would notice if I was addicted. I've had several patients say, "Well, doc, I'm, I'm sure you'll tell me when I'm addicted." No, I, I have no idea. <laughs> how, would, how would I would ever know that? You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. I see you once a month, once every other month, and you you just tell me, "Oh, your pain's." Better or the same? I mean it's (laughs) Yeah, right. I'm never gonna know that you're addicted to this medication or using it inappropriately. If the patient, you know, was able to actively and legally go out and get hardcore drugs, they would really have the responsibility of saying, okay, is this something I want to put in my body? Yeah. But every day we are writing hardcore drugs. Uh, amphetamines. There's been studies that show that uh, Ritalin is, if you if you give a meth addict, methamphetamines or Ritalin crushed up, and you say, choose between the two. It's a 50-50 split, which they prefer. It's a likability study. Sure. Um, yeah. And so we're writing that for, you know, kids because they won't sit in class. And, you know, you've got, uh, you know, all of these. You know, heroin was originally made and marketed back in the, you know, or the early 1900s, as a treatment for morphine abuse, after uh, uh, these uh, people uh, abusing morphine. Oh, heroin! It's a new formulated thing to help people. It's not as addictive. You hear this all the time. Oh, this new formulation is not as addictive. Right. Um, and it kind of gives this uh, shiny veneer that this that these medications aren't real medications that are dangerous. I don't know, it would kind of lay all this stuff bare and give patients, physicians, and pharmacists uh, a wide variety of ways of you know, treating, controlling this. Just like the government restrictions on Suboxone prescriptions. The DEA says you can't write eyes a pain physician, can't write Suboxone except to use it for pain. And then it's a real kind of gray area it's only an addiction medication.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, and if you are an addiction specialist, you can only have, you know, something like, I can't remember the latest number, but it's like a hundred patients on Suboxone. So there's this uh, huge limitation of, you know, addiction specialists, addiction specialists that have openings to get into some type of an opioid maintenance treatment. Yeah. And Suboxone and- is
0: an ag- it's an agonist antagonist, right? So it's, Correct.
1: Yeah. It fills up all those pain receptors. So if you abuse another type of opioid on top of that, you're not going to get that high. Right. But it still is a a potentially dangerous drug. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, once again, not as dangerous as heroin morphine and oxycodone, but that does have some physiologic basis to be thought of as not as dangerous because there's only so much that that will kind of saturate those receptors and they'll kind of hang out there um, and not accept any more in the system. Right. So
0: I appreciate the discussion. We're going to have to probably cut off there because I guess if you don't know about partial I'll, I'm going to try and find an article and put it in the show notes page which will be at the paradox.com/027. Uh, also contact information for the cast for the I'm sorry the the Columbia Pain Institute and is there any other way you like people to contact you or get a hold of you?
1: Well, I'm starting uh, some new podcasts. One is going to be called uh, Define Your Terms, where I uh, take a common phrase and uh, I and a guest will kind of break down what each of those little terms truly means to ourselves and try to get to the kind of a core understanding of of, um, what we mean when we say some of these buzzwords, you know, money, capitalism, socialism, greed, rights, things like that. Uh, you know, some people on some sides of the spectrum may have a completely different understanding of what, you know, capitalism is or sure. what a thought of as rights are. Um, but I think at our core, everyone kind of agrees on uh, what we're trying to accomplish, which is just to uh, live a moral and upright life and love each other.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that sums it up pretty well. for life. Uh, Again, thanks you so much for joining me. Uh, We'll look forward to finding those podcasts when they come out.
1: All right. Take care, Dr. Larson. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash The Paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.